Good morning. I'm Lori Wiley, and I'll be sharing with you today's scripture from the third chapter of Jonah. Please rise. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, you promise us that your word does not return to you empty, but like the rain you send, it accomplishes its purpose. Father, we pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in our lives and in the life of your church this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that my family grew up camping. It was our every summer vacation. You might think that with camping goes fishing. No. Uh, I've only ever been fishing once in my life. It was the first summer that we were going to go camping in Allegheny State Park, western New York, and I convinced my dad that I wanted to go fishing every morning that we were camping. So he got gear. We didn't own gear. Fishing poles, tackle box, the lures. He got himself a license so that he could help. And that first morning, we went out fishing, and I threw my line out and reeled it in, and threw it out and reeled it in. And threw it out and real, he said, my dad said, no, that's not how you do it. You got to throw it out and leave it out there. I threw it out. I said, this is boring. I'm done. We fished for five minutes. A lot of effort went into getting ready to fish. And we fished for five minutes. Uh, that's Jonah chapter three. A lot of effort goes into getting Jonah to Nineveh, and he preaches a sermon that is five words long. Now in the English, it's like eight, 
But in Hebrew, it's five words. It's probably a summary of what he said. But if I had gone through everything he went through, the summary of my sermon would certainly be more than five words. Since God's word first came to Jonah, back in chapter 1, he has been through hell and back. He ran away from God. He was pursued by God and lived through a tempest, a horrible storm that was supernatural and fierce. He went through an inquisition by the sailors. He was thrown overboard. He nearly drowned. He was swallowed by a great fish. And inside the belly of this fish, his living hell, he finally prays. And at the end of Jonah chapter 2, which we looked at last week, God speaks to the fish and the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. And now on dry land, the word of God comes a second time to Jonah and says, arise, go, and call out. The exact same three commands that he got in chapter 1. Arise, go, and call out. But he's still 600 miles from Nineveh. I can just imagine a really fun rabbi telling this story. And the story goes, Jonah ran, now he's vomited out, and the rabbi reads, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And the kids cheer, you know, finally he's doing the right thing. But he still has to trek 600 miles across desert. And when he gets there, he preaches a five-word sermon. I love this chapter. Partly because there's so little Jonah in it. So much God, so little Jonah. This chapter really does highlight the triumph of God's gracious global mission. Because Jonah used five words, I've chosen to use five words myself for this sermon. Sermons organized around five words. First word is mission. God's mission reflects God's heart for the world, and we see a glimpse of that here in the book of Jonah, here in Jonah chapter 3. If you have your Bible, look at verse 3, and the text says in English, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. That's how the ESV translates it. The NIV says a very great city. Other translations say something roughly similar. The Hebrew says it was a great city to God. Why do the English translations leave that part out? I have no idea. Commentators don't either. Looked at nine different commentaries, seven of them translate it. It was a great city to God. Why? Because of its culture? No. Because it was a population hub. Chapter 4, which we look at next week, tells us there was 120,000 people living in the city. Huge by ancient standards. 
120 people, 120 souls, 120,000 image bearers. And the text says this pagan city, known for its evil and its violence and its wickedness, it belongs to God and God's gracious mission includes even these people as sinful and far from God as they are. God's purpose is universal. His mission is global because there are image bearers from every tribe and nation and people. And we often equate mission with going and sending missionaries. But if we do that, we'll conclude that mission began in the New Testament. It didn't. Uh, Our mission as the people of God precedes the book of Acts. It precedes the birth of Jesus. It goes all the way back to sin entering the world. Because as soon as sin entered the world, God took on a mission to redeem the world. And he created a people for his mission. As long as there has been a people of God... They have been on mission. Being on mission is part and parcel. It is constitutional to being the people of God. That mission has taken different forms through the centuries. In the Old Testament, we see record of Gentiles coming and finding relationship with God and being attached to the people of God But it usually happened by attraction. It's what some people refer to as centripetal mission. Israel existed and they reflected the goodness and the glory of God. And people were attracted to that. People like Rahab, Ruth, Nahum. As you march on through the centuries, there were some Israelites who found themselves in foreign cities and bore witness to God's goodness. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were in cities like Babylon or in Persia. And they bore witness, but they didn't go with that intent. They were exiles. The prophet Jeremiah sent messages to foreign cities But in the Old Testament, Jonah is the only one who actually went to a foreign city to accomplish the mission. But the difference is in strategy. The difference is in how the mission gets done, not the existence of mission. God's people have always had a mission to represent God and to speak his words to the world. When you get to the New Testament, it's not that sending replaced the attractional kind of model, but sending got added to it. We as the church, as the people of God, are supposed to live in such a way that we are attractive, winsome. We draw people in and they ask, why are they different? They see our good deeds and they give Glory to our Father in heaven. Uh, We're known by our, we're supposed to be attracting people, and we send out emissaries to go and tell people who haven't yet heard. 
God's heart leads him to mission. And he creates a people for that mission. So have you embraced that yourself? Is your life consumed with this idea that you belong to something that is bigger than you? A purpose, a cause that stretches through the centuries, that goes across the globe. You have a role to play in the mission of God to his world. And that impacts how we view relationships, how we view our work, how we use our money. You are being invited into the joy of becoming part of something bigger and more significant than you. Part of the mission of God. The first word was mission. I promise you, that was the longest. Second word is patience. As a part of God's gracious mission, God displays incredible patience with sinful humanity. The word of God came to Jonah a second time. Jonah gets a second chance. And just how God engages with him shows God's patience. I want to hear God say, don't make me tell you again, Jonah. (laughs) But there's no tone. There's no browbeating. There's no reminder. You messed up the first time. Get it right this time. Just patience. Here's your instructions go. And Nineveh gets 40 days. 40 days of God's patience and forbearance, allowing them the time to come to repentance. But when we talk about God's patience, and it is a wonderful attribute of God, he is slow to anger. We got to be careful not to presume upon it. Because patience, patience is a mercy that God does not owe us. So we can't presume upon it. Not everyone does get a second chance. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get a Jonah to warn them. Korah led a rebellion against Moses. He didn't get a warning. The ground swallowed him. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira don't get a second chance. They drop dead. If we do get second chances, if we do experience the patience of God, and we're here in this room, so we are, It's meant to lead us to repentance. Paul in Romans 2 says, Don't presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is the third word. God's mission is redemptive and restorative. His mission is setting things right in this world. Things that have gone horribly astray because of sin. So his mission necessarily includes bringing 
people to repentance. Sin destroys. Where sin abounds, where sin advances unchecked, humans cannot flourish. So God in his grace does not leave people in their sin. He brings them to repentance. In Jonah chapter 1 and 2, we've seen the length that God goes to bring Jonah to repentance. In Jonah 3, here we see Nineveh's repentance. And it is incredible. A five-word message spreads through the city. And from least to greatest, they are repenting. They are fasting. They are putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Even the beasts, it says, have sackcloth on. I don't think we're meant to imagine all the sheep out in the field wearing sackcloth vests. But that's not without precedent. The Persians of the day, at the loss of one of their great commanding generals, shaved all the horses bare as a sign of grief. The picture is supposed to be that this repentance is thoroughgoing from top to bottom, man, woman, beast, child, all of it is repentant before God. And the king says, turn from your evil ways and the violence that is in your hands. The French theologian Jacques Ellul is shocked by this repentance. This is so unprecedented, so unexpected. He says, Nineveh condemns itself and in effect ceases to be Nineveh. They're known for their violence. And now they see it as a great evil and they set it aside. Nineveh, proud of its power and invincibility, ceases to be itself when it humbles itself. What it is known for, it now repudiates. No more. No more violence. That'd be like going to Texas and preaching a sermon and they say, we're going to give up our guns and our barbecue. Going to L.A. and preaching a five-word sermon and they say, we're going to give up sex and drugs. Going to Vegas, preaching. and What you're known for, they repudiate. They give it up. No more violence. Jonah strolls into a city and confronts the Ninevites. But God uses the story of Jonah to confront his people. Nineveh repented when they were confronted with their sin. What will you, my people, do? Again, Jonah stands in stark contrast to Amos. The Ninevites stand in stark contrast to Israel. And Amos, the prophet, calls out Israel and calls out the king for its sins. And Jeroboam's sins. And the people say, get out of here. We don't want to hear it. No repentance. But the Ninevites, these pagans, they get Jonah and a five-word sermon, and they repent. 
Jesus uses this story to shame the Pharisees, right? Nineveh repented. Someone better than Jonah is here, and you're not listening. Our sins are laid bare. The Spirit is convicting. What will we do? Repent? Or send the messenger away? Third word is repentance. Fourth word is power. We are included in God's mission. We get to participate in God's global purposes. But the power is not ours. The power to prosper this message, the power to actually produce fruit, that comes from God and God alone. If you're a basketball player, I'm sure you've been out in the backyard shooting on your hoop and you're creating scenarios and your dream is to hit a buzzer beater shot in a state championship game and they carry you off, right? If you're a baseball player, you're out there with a wiffle ball and you're hitting home runs and you're imagining hitting a walk-off home run in the World Series and the crowd goes crazy. Those are your dreams. If you're a prophet, if you're a preacher, your dream is you preach a sermon that has tremendous impact and people respond and they repent and they come to faith in God. That's what happens here. The whole city is responding. Now for Jonah, what we're seeing is that this isn't a dream. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare for him. But does Jonah go down as one of the greatest preachers ever? Five-word sermon and 120,000 people respond. Ah, he didn't get credit. (laughs) Couldn't do that. I think the text is showing us his heart is not in this at all. Nineveh is a huge city. The text says it requires three days to travel across. Now, we don't know what that means because, frankly, Manhattan doesn't even require three days to travel across on foot. Probably it's an idiom, or it's meant to convey that you'd have to have three days to go up and down all the streets proclaiming the message. But either way, we're told Jonah began to go in the city one day. Not really fully committed to the task. And he preaches a sermon that, again, is a five-word sermon. Forty days, and you're all going to die. And the people are left wondering, what do we do? Jonah doesn't tell him. He doesn't say a word about God. Doesn't say a word about sin or repentance. Just doom. Now, if this is a summary, and I'm sure it is, of his message, it's still very telling, right? That's all he talks about is doom. Jonah is not really into this. He doesn't want his mission to succeed. Uh, This past week, doing some research, I unearthed an old, rare video of Jonah when he was a youth. Okay, here it is. 
So, okay. That is the attitude that Jonah has as he goes about his preaching ministry in Nineveh. I, I remember Caleb was three, maybe, no, had to be three, maybe four years old, and Jake was a baby, a year, and they shared a room. This is back when we lived in Pennsylvania, and they shared a room, and one night, Jake just wasn't going to sleep, and the way you could get Jake to calm down and go to sleep was sing to him. So Caleb is in the room singing to him. You're thinking, oh, how sweet and precious. No. Uh, Singing to him, Jesus loves me. But it's Jesus loves me. Shut up. Be quiet. Go to. That's Jonah. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. You're all going to die. So what explains the repentance? God. God preparing the Ninevites to hear this message. God's Spirit working in their hearts, bringing them to repentance. Let me just offer a word of encouragement to those who are involved in ministry. Campus ministry, you volunteer here at the church in youth ministry, or you're involved in children's ministry. Our confidence is not in a method, not in a tool, not in a plan. Right now, we're all laying out plans and coming up with new methods, and that's good. We ought to do that. But we can become really confident in a method. It's a method that's tried and true, and we've done it for 40 years this way, and we'll just keep doing it, and it's the method that's going to work. No! Or maybe it's a bold, brand new, innovative method, and we put all of our confidence in that. No. Our confidence is in the Word of God and God's power to bring about response. Remember hearing the story of R.C. Sproul's conversion. R.C. Sproul is a theologian who just passed away a few years ago, tremendously influential. But he was a freshman at Westminster College in Pennsylvania, and he was on the football team. He was a freshman, and one of the seniors on the football team was having in the cafeteria a little Bible study at lunchtime. And he told R.C., you know, come over and join us. When the senior captain of the football team tells the freshman to come and join the Bible study, the freshman does. And R.C. Sobrol says, I think I was the only person ever to be converted by the verse in Ecclesiastes 11.3. What's the verse? If a tree falls, whether it falls to the north or the south, wherever it falls, there it shall lie. What? But R.C. Sproul tells the story, I heard that. I knew that was me. I was fallen, dead, rotting. And he went back to his dorm, and he wrestled with God in prayer, and God changed his life. Power. It's not in our methods. The power is from God. Last word. 
is mercy. I've used this word every week of this series. I promise you I'll use it next week too. This is a tale of mercy. Now what's striking in Jonah chapter 3, the word mercy doesn't show up. The message of mercy doesn't show up. Jonah preaches wrath. But God uses it to show mercy. Jonah preached five terse, wrath-filled words. And God used it to show mercy. Jonah preached wrath. So did Jesus. Jonah preached wrath in five terse words. Jesus preached wrath primarily by going to the cross. On the cross, we see the damning effects of sin. On the cross, we see God's hatred of sin. On the cross, we see mercy as God in the flesh takes on the full venting of God's wrath so that we don't have to. Jonah left his wanderers, his hearers, wondering, who knows, maybe God will relent. Jesus shows us God is more than willing to relent, more than willing to have grace and mercy. In Jonah's story and Nineveh's story, mercy triumphs, but it is only a faint glimmer of Jesus' story, where the global triumph of God's grace and mercy are pronounced, not just for one city, but as far as the curse is found. The book of Jonah is used in Jewish services surrounding Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's used because it's a book that highlights repentance and God's mercy, and that's what the Day of Atonement are all about. I want to close the sermon with a prayer, but it's a prayer borrowed from a Yom Kippur service. Would you pray with me? We have grown accustomed to our sin, and the fragments of Scripture lie shattered in our life. Charity has withered with calculation, and the sparks of purity have burnt out. Yet still we come to the Lord, and to the God who said, I have forgiven, whispers it again, and awaits for our reply. What shall it be? What form shall it take? Let us repair what can still be repaired. Let us give back the gain we earned by injustice. Let us make peace with our injured brother. Let us restore the person we wronged. Let us admit what is false in ourselves. Let us put right what is wrong in our family. Let us not sour the joy of living. May God give us the courage to do these things and help us to rebuild our lives. And when we have finished our tasks, may he permit us to enjoy the light sown for the righteous so that he can delight in us. 
The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. Amen.